Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Turn with me in your Bibles to John. We are on a series following John to the heart of Jesus. And John, the story is around not just a verse-by-verse gospel rendering of Jesus and the good news. It's around the journey of this man who pursued his Lord. Last week we started, we spoke about where he had been called out. And today I want to take it to that next step of the journey. Again, you can grab this. There's some notes on the QR code. You can uh, take a picture of that. It'll download onto your uh, phone and you can follow along the notes. It's made available as well online to follow as well. John chapter 1 verse 14. How many here last week I had a homework? Now's the time to ask. Now do not lie. Remember you're in the house of God. Do not lie. But if you actually, sometime in the last seven days, opened up to the book of John and began to read from the book of John, how many began to do that? Okay, six of you, God bless you all. Um, listen, you need to go, and you need, I'm glad you didn't lie though, you need to go and read, I encourage you to slowly, methodically read through the gospel of John, and it will help you. And the reason I say slowly, methodically, if you have a study guide, do it with a study guide. Take your time, go through it. We got all summer just focusing on the gospel of John. It will help you to understand what's going on in his life. As the Holy Spirit flowed through him to write these words, the gospel of John, there is not a book in the Bible that is more preached on, that is more written about, and is more distributed than the gospel of John. Dear friend of mine in Cuba, we travel there yearly on Cuba missions. We have a number of friends pastoring churches in the Assemblies of God in Cuba. And in his church, every year they published the book of John. And it was the entire book of John, the 21 chapters. They put it into book form and they went throughout their city. 70,000 people, they went throughout their city. And to every house they gave the book of John. It did more for reaching people than any endeavor the church had ever done. This is in, you know, atheistic Cuba, who, you know, many do not believe God exists. And and the gospel of John, just reading through it, when they got to the end of John, people were, were embracing a Savior, recognizing they needed cleansing from their sins. So that's the gospel of John. Encourage you to do that. John chapter 1, verse 14. Last week we started John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God. The Word was God. Speaking of Christ, it was a capital W. Speaking of Christ was in the beginning. The Word was declared in the beginning, and He is the living Word. We refer to Christ today. Now we come to verse 14. The Word, capital W again, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Verse 15, John. Now, when he mentions John, he's not referring to himself. It gets a little confusing, potentially. He's referring to, anybody want to know what John he's talking about here? John the Baptist. So the writer to the Gospel of John is not John the Baptist, just information. It's the apostle or disciple John. So James and John were brothers. But John the Baptist, and John the Baptist wasn't his name. You know, John, middle name, the, and the last name, Baptist. Okay? No, it wasn't John the Baptist. We call him John the Baptist because he was really one of the first baptizers in the day. Now, many disciples were baptizing in that day, disciples of Jesus. But John the Baptist was really a forerunner of that conversion experience. And so that's why we call him John the Baptist. Now, this is not... So the writer of the gospel is not John the Baptist. It's the disciple John. But he mentions John the Baptist in verse 15. So verse 15, we pick it up again. John the Baptist testified concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Seems like a bit of a mystery. How do you get your head around that? Let me just slow that one down. He who comes after me, John the Baptist was older than Jesus, not by much, but he was on the scene already proclaiming Messiah. Then when Jesus came on the scene, when we read of Jesus' baptism, where Jesus came and John baptized Jesus in the Jordan, that's what John is referencing. John testifies concerning Jesus, the one I spoke about, he who comes after me, Jesus, has surpassed me, because he was before me. How was he before? Well, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was from the beginning. In the beginning was the word. So we come to verse 16. This is really our text today. 16. Out of Jesus' fullness, we, everyone who would be a part of the audience, that's us today, 2,000 years later, we have received grace in place of grace, already given. Can you read verse 16 together with me out loud, everybody? Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace, already given. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this. Lord, if we are to understand John's pursuit to your heart, then help us to understand where he's, where he's at with this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message today is A Passion for Fullness. Let me go back to this verse 16. It's a little confusing, potentially. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. What's he talking about there? Another translation says it this way. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another blessing. From his grace... He's giving blessing upon blessing upon more blessing, more blessing, more blessing, more blessing. It's, it's like blessing to the power and just whatever keeps going, never ends. Blessing upon blessing, 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 blessing. So let's, when you look at it, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. The word blessing or grace, the word grace comes from the Greek word charis or charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, it means grace. It's the Greek word grace, but it's translated blessing. So this grace, this blessing, what is it defined? In the Greek, it's defined as joy, 
pleasure, gratification, favor, acceptance, and benefit. Hello, I like every one of those. <laughs> this is good. Joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, acceptance, benefit. And so I didn't clue into this until this morning. When I was going over this and I was reading verse 16 again early this morning, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already. And then that song began to stir in my heart. You know that song. It isn't that old. Uh, the lyrics go like this. Lord, how you loved me. I don't deserve grace on top of grace. No, how many know that song? Okay. Um, go ahead, sing it with me. Lord, how you love me. I don't deserve grace on top of grace. More than I've asked. More than I've asked for. More than I'm worth. Grace on top of grace. If you know the next part. How sweet the sound once lost now found heaven came down and grace rescued me if you can reach that me hey they sound pretty good daniel you were right that's where it comes from so think of that song you go back to verse 16 that song i think anyway comes from here where it says back in verse 16 where it said out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Or grace on top of grace, on top of grace. Blessing, on top of blessing, on top of blessing. So, based on John chapter 1, 14, 15, 16, and the definition we just looked at, we can draw this conclusion. First of all, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Know what it said there. It said... From the fullness of his grace. Where does it come from? So when I get blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, where's it all coming from? It's coming from the fullness of Jesus. He has so much blessing in him. I don't know how many people there are in the world. Seven, eight billion? I don't know what it is now. Won't run dry. We can be overflowed with blessing all of us, and we've barely touched it because it flows out of him. Wow. Flows, that's what John is saying. So we're, we're getting into the head of John. John is saying there is so much blessing. There is so much charisma in him. The gift of grace is so full where he says out of his fullness, we can heap it upon grace, blessing upon blessing. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Secondly, all of us get to receive from his fullness. This wasn't just about John, but any who believe in him, he gave the right to become the sons of God and them grace on top of grace. If you're a child of Jesus here this morning, if you are a disciple of Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, grace on top of grace is for you. Blessing overflowing is for you today. That's what John is saying. And thirdly, these grace gifts flowing from Christ's fullness are not only beneficial, but they are expressions of God's favor that will give you joy and pleasure. God favors you. He favors you. So today I want to talk about the passion for fullness because that's what John is trying to get across. He's getting across here that in relationship with Jesus, 
There's no fullness like it. Now, we need to hear this because I don't know about you, but everything around me, especially when I get out of my moments with the Lord, this world is trying to tell me, marketers are trying to tell me, media is trying to tell me, my, my, my acquaintances are trying to tell me, you got to do this, this is awesome, you'll love this, this is this, this, and you got to do this, and they're trying to tell you what will give you that fullness. But John is giving it very clear. You can only find grace on top of grace. You will only find blessing over blessing in abundance, fullness of passion of blessing in Christ. It's actually there. And so here's the other thing. If you're thinking, well, I've never experienced it. If it's there, how come I'm just like, I don't get it. Well, maybe it's because we've not really believed it. If we can really believe that God desires to do this. Remember, we're following John to the heart of Jesus. We're not standing there with our arms folded going, okay, where are you going? We're saying, I want to go with you. I want to go and step with you. I need to know not just Jesus in name. I need more than God on once a week on Sunday for an hour, an hour and a half. I need to know him and be known by him. I need to experience him in a deeper way. And he's saying, you will never plumb the depth of his fullness. Now, if that stirs your heart and saying, I wish it was true, then stay with this journey. Because according, remember how he says when you pray, ask and you will finish it for me. You'll receive. Seek and you will what? Knock in the door. Okay, now back it up. Ask and you, you receive based on if you're a child of God, you have full inherited right to receive from him. There's a difference between inheritance and possessing the inheritance. You might, you might have a rich aunt or uncle. God bless you if you do. I'd like to get to know you. And you might have an inheritance, but you know if you never cash it, it means nothing. There's a difference between you have an inheritance and you have a possession of it. An inheritance means it's your right but a possession means you've taken possession of it. Beloved, there, there are people all over the world who have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. You've accepted Christ. You've gone through the waters of baptism, but you've not walked in his possession of it. John is, John is identifying this. I believe it's not coincidental that at the very last chapter, we're not there. I'm jumping ahead, I know. But in chapter 21, there's a conversation between Peter and Jesus. Peter's coming off that horrible denial of Jesus. And Jesus and Peter are having a conversation. And immediately, this Peter, who's as bold as brass in my opinion, in my understanding, this is a type A type personality guy, Peter, who in the conversation with Jesus, early in the conversation, looks over to John and says, what about him? And I clued into me, Peter, you're jealous of the relationship John has with Jesus. He immediately pointed over to John, what about him? There was something about John and Jesus the other disciples struggled in getting. I think until they were baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They struggled in understanding. What is it that John tapped into? And John just didn't tap into it in 30 years. He lived, they suspect he lived over 90 years of age. He was the one who just kept going and going and going. And so John testified, and that's I mentioned last week where many have said, well, if you live as long as me and you've had as many hardships as me, you won't believe the way you do. And the answer is wrong. No, quite to the contrary. John is a testament that if you live to be 90-something, 
you will discover the greatness of your God. Deeper grace on top of grace, abundant upon abundance, blessing upon blessing available to you. And so that's why I believe there could have been some jealousy amongst the disciples. Peter with Jesus saying, well, what about John? You and him got this thing going, but I seem to be on the outside looking in. And Jesus was saying, John, do you love me? Or Peter, do you love me? He was getting right back to Peter, do you love me? You see, Peter, you got an inheritance, but now it's time to take possession of it. It's time to walk in it. It's time to embrace it. Wow, so today I want to talk about there's more. Following John to the heart of Jesus, there's more. I want to start first point, there is more life. He gives you more life. Now I want to start here because you might be suspicious of this. This might simply confirm a suspicion here. I'm going to say it. It's a confession. I, Wayne Lucas, am a Christian hedonist. Every time I've said that, there's the same kind of a, you know, get the cameras out, let's record this. I'm a Christian hedonist. Now, I didn't say I'm a, I'm a heathen. There's a, you know there's a difference between heathen and a hedonist, okay? And a hedonist, so what's a hedonist? Oh, I don't think that's good. Hedonist. Hedonist defined is a person who believes that the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life, a pleasure seeker. Now, remember I said I'm not a hedonist. I am a what? Christian hedonist. Follow with me. Jesus, I enjoy him. And life everlasting. He gives me pleasure. He gives me fulfillment. So I'm a Christian hedonist. Hedonist, person who believes in the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life, a pleasure seeker. I pursue him. He does give pleasure. Years ago, I was handed a book. Probably 30 years ago. I was handed almost 30 years ago. And the book was called Enjoying God. And I thought, <gasps> because I kind of grew up thinking it was all about discipline. And there is a lot of discipline, the spiritual disciplines. And if you're not suffering, somehow you're just, you know, you need to suffer all the time. Okay, some of you can identify with this, right? Like if you're not suffering, there must be, you know. So if you're suffering, praise God, I'm getting more spiritual. And I kind of grew up with, you know, maybe simplifying it too much. But somebody gave me this book, Enjoying God. Does God want us to enjoy him? Not just do it out of begrudging and I got to do it and I got to do it. And it's a discipline and I'm just going to get through this world by and by. I can hardly wait for the Lord to take me. Or does he bring joy, even happiness and pleasure. I have to admit, though, there are times in my life I've been so overwhelmed by his love that I have been at a loss for words. Yesterday was case in point. It's just my heart was heavy. And so I sat down at the keyboard and just began to play. And something began to happen. I began to enjoy my Lord. I got from the keyboard. I went and picked up my guitar began to continue on the guitar. I was done the guitar, I went to another piece, and I began to, a song came to my heart, and I began to, I didn't know how to play it, so I just kind of looked at it and just went through the words of a song. And what was happening? Joy was flowing. There was like blessing upon blessing began to flow out of that. Christianity is not about emotion. Don't, 
because I know I'm going to be misinterpreted here. Christianity is not about emotions. Christianity is about sacrifice and surrender. It is. But I admit my heart frequently races with holy anticipation when I think about my Lord Jesus. And truly, he is the uncontested delight of my life. It is about sacrifice. It is about devotion. It is about surrender. But when I do, there is joy unspeakable. Joy unspeakable flows from him to us. So when we come back to John chapter 1, verse 16, John is testifying. He says, out of his fullness, you will never tap the fullness of. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace that has already been given. Grace is God's favor looking for a place to happen. And from his favor, we can receive one blessing upon another blessing. If you don't believe it, then you will not anticipate the joy of the Lord in your life. You won't embrace when he wants to take you to a higher plane. You won't embrace with expectation what he's got planned for you today. It'll just be begrudging act of duty. And boy, that can be really hard selling over a period of time. Now, again, I'm not selling happiness that if you don't feel it, you haven't got it. I don't believe that. But we have lost the ability to realize he wants to fill us with blessing and joy as his children, just as you would your children so much more. The song we just sang, he's a good, good father. And it flows out of that. From his favor, we receive blessing. You know, it doesn't really matter how long you've known Jesus. I'm convinced we have hardly scratched the surface. So much more of him exists. So much more he is willing to give us, to show us, to tell us. Out of his fullness, we've just begun. We've only just begun. I want to break into songs here this morning. Exodus chapter 33, Moses got a hold of this. This is a way back in a very difficult time. Moses in Exodus 33, 15, when Moses was faced with the chance to go into a land of promise, of blessing, the land had, had food, had um, wealth, had prosperity, and God said, Moses, you can go in. You can go in. He had the chance to go in. A land, a place of blessing. But Moses made a declaration. Here's the, Moses says, but if your presence doesn't go with me, that doesn't mean much to me. Now, how, where does Moses come off doing this? Moses understood opulence. He grew up in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. He had everything at his fingertips, all the wealth he could want, all the prestige, all the power it could offer. He understood power. He understood opulence. But Moses, after having seen that and given an opportunity to go into a land where he could have all that, Moses says, no way. Because he had been up on a mount with God. He had beheld the fullness of the Father. So much so that when he came down, they had to throw a veil over him because there was just such brightness coming off of him. And Moses, when he had the opportunity to go into a land, a place that offered great things, things, beautiful homes, beautiful this, drive that, have money, vacations, weekends here, all the pleasures of your body. Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, 
do not send me from here. I will stay where your presence is. What's Moses saying? Moses is saying, greater fullness and blessing in your presence than anything this world can offer. And he had been there and done it. Now, if Moses is saying that, and he's a smart cookie. I mean, look at all the things he wrote. He's a smart guy. God downloaded onto this guy the Torah, the Pentateuch, the things that we, much of our doctrine has come down through that, the laws. And yet Moses said, you know, in the midst of all that, Lord, it's your presence. It's the fullness of joy. David, who had the opulence of all the kingdom of Israel, the greatest bastion of power at that time. And David wrote in Psalm 63.3, David said, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. He had it all, but David said, your love is better than life. Paul, in Philippians 3.10, found the secret that only Jesus could truly satisfy. Paul would say, he considered everything at loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul the apostle, the head of the Pharisees. In fact, Paul believed greater joy lies in suffering with Christ than in the pain-free life without him. Let me say that again. He believed there is greater joy when you suffer with Christ than living pain-free life without Christ. Paul would say in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and, listen, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings become like him unto death. He said, I, there's greater joy in even the difficulty of following Jesus than what this world has to offer. You know, we, we've kind of maybe got that a little upside down sometimes, don't we? That we're pursuing the things around us, and that's what the world will want. That's what the enemy of your soul will want. That's what even people sometimes in the church will tell you to pursue those things. But can we have a clarion call here this morning? If you want to follow John to the heart of Jesus, you got to know there is nothing like what he is to offer you. You have only just begun to tap into it. Embrace it. Come with expectations that he has more. Don't come with the little. Come with great expectations. Don't ask him for the small. Believe him for the greatest. In that expression earlier, we ask because we have in the right position to receive. But the next part, it says, seek and you will find. Discover what he has for you. Seek it with all. If you seek him with all your heart, he said, you'll find him. But you must seek him with all your heart. Not just, well, is he here today? I'll give you a couple of minutes, God. And if you're going to do it, you're going to do it in a few minutes. No, 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 no. You know, one of the greatest things I'm coming to learn even as I get older, when it comes to praying with other people, it's not the prayer you prayed. It's the engagement, the amount of time that you spend believing there is something even greater he wants to do. And it requires the nine fruit of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. It just requires you to stay steadfast, knowing, knowing there is more. There is more. There is more. Have you given up on the more? Have you given up on the fullness? Have you given up thinking, well, this is all it is, and I guess I'm just going to have to trudge it through to the rest. Listen, there's lethargicness. 
There's people in my life, I've looked at people who are Christians, and I'm going, if that's what Christ-like living is, I'm not really sure I want to be one of them. People don't deny Jesus because of who Jesus is. They deny Jesus because they look at some of us. And they go, I don't really see anything different. Why would I want him? But when they realize that there is something so much deeper, and it's not you going around and being fake. It's that there is depth as you've plumbed to the depths of his love. Grace on top of grace, blessing on top of blessing that flows in like the waves of the ocean that you can't ever get enough of them. Just keeps flowing. So the word of God is full of godly hedonists. <laughs> I'm not just a Christian hedonist by myself. The word of God is filled with hedonists. I just told you, Moses was a godly hedonist. David was a godly hedonist. Paul was a godly hedonist. And I am a godly hedonist. I believe that he has blessings, pleasure, enjoying him. I seek him. Seeking him zealously and jealously was the best thing that ever happens. God stated himself when he said to Abram in Genesis 15.1, he said, I am your greatest reward. <laughs> Wasn't found in a thing. Wasn't even found in the generations that followed. He says, I, when you've discovered me, there's no greater reward. I am. I am your very great reward. In the same vein, the writer to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 11:6 tells us we must not only believe God lives, but that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There it is again. In the totality of all the writings, John, the gospel writer, when we compare John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's something that John continues to say that I think helps us to understand John better. Amongst all the gospel writers, John has more to say about the concepts of life. He talks about light. He talks about love. He talks about truth. He talks about the glory of God. He talks about the signs of God. He talks about belief. He talks of those items, life, light, love, truth, glory, signs, belief, more than all the gospel writers combined. That's why you need to read this gospel again. Look at how he, his gospel is unique. How was he inspired? John had an overwhelming need to talk about God as dad. He referred to him as father, but that could be translated dad. God as dad more than any other inspired writer. Interestingly, if you did a number, a word search, out of the, in the New Testament, there are 248 references to God as father. 248 references of the entire 28 books. Is it 28 or 27? 27, thank you. Don't want to add one. 248. John penned 130 of those. That's how much he talked about dad. Dad. Referred to God as his dad. John had more to say about God's relation to the world than any of the other writers as well. Of the New Testament references to the world, there are 206. John was exactly half of those. 103, John makes reference. The God, speaking of how God loves this world. He will go over and over talk about it, talk about it, his love for the world. 
103 times. Now we're starting to get inside the head of John. The point is that in the length of life and the depth of love, John discovered the concept more, more. And I'm convinced of, in the nutshell explanation for John's entire experience and perspective is one of intimacy that comes out of John just desired more and he wouldn't settle for less. So my prayer, God help me to be like that. That I desire more and not less. That I don't desire just to get by. I don't want to get a D or a C. I want to be A plus in knowing you. I strive to know you more. So when I get up today, may I know you more. This week, may I know you more. May I compare myself this week. God, have I known you more than I did a month ago? Have I pursued you as a God of the more who has greater blessing or not? John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. He wants more. He just doesn't want you to get saved and then just wait until you die. He wants to give you more. Now, some here are going to hear it and it means nothing to you. Because this world is offering you too much to give it up. But I'm believing there are those here who this world, you know this, is, this world is not offering you what you need. And your heart's being stirred today that you need the more. And I'm going to pray with you, believe together with you and you with me that we not settle for the less when there is the more to believe in. If he's a God of abundance, then can I believe him for the more? It means over and above, more than enough, super abundant, much greater. I have come to give you full. Now, we keep it in perspective again. Don't confuse this with never having challenges. Don't confuse this with never facing suffering. You will. In fact, the greatest part of our lives are when we experience those hard times. But in every one of them, if you read the scriptures that we will experience hard times, it says, but be an overcomer. So yeah, you will go through it. And don't minimize it. And sometimes you need to walk through it fully. But when you do, you're an overcomer. You stand on the principle, I will overcome. He's my overcomer. I overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you can't believe that, if we don't believe that, we will be overcome by it, by this world. So Christian hedonists don't discount suffering. We just don't give up until we gain what was lost. We will gain what we lost. More life. Now I want to talk about something a little bit uh, interesting. More wine. John chapter 2, follow with me, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said, It's like she didn't pay any. Any godmothers like that, they don't pay any attention to you? Okay. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars. These were vats, kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. These were washing jars. Big ones, though, like we're talking massive. Each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. That's how big they were. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. Nine, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned 
into wine. Okay, now, Jesus loves weddings. Jesus loves weddings. The pre-existent eternal word began, think about it, he began his divine thesis in Genesis chapter 2 with the wedding, Adam and Eve, joined together for life. He started with a wedding. Revelation chapter 19, he ends with the wedding. I'm the bride and he's the groom and he will unite us to, together. He loves weddings. He likes weddings. Anybody here like weddings? Jesus loves weddings. He's at a wedding here, John chapter 2. He's attending a wedding feast. Probably related to the family or his family. We, aren't really, we don't really know, but we know his family's detailed in the wedding. And in this wedding, there's a huge embarrassment takes place. Somebody dropped the ball here. They run out of wine. And such an occurrence would have been an embarrassment to the host. Mary brings it to Jesus' attention. Jesus seems to kind of brush her off, but she couldn't be brushed off. She just goes to the servants and says, listen, he's going to do something. So you follow him, and whatever he says, do. Remember last week we talked about you don't ask him what it is he wants you to do, and then you decide to do it. You say yes, and then he'll give you the instructions. And so she was telling them that, that information right there. You follow him around, whatever he says. You do it. Don't question it. Does it make sense? Don't question it. So they don't. So what does Jesus talk about? He talks about fill them up to the brim. You have no reason they're going to question it, because Mary already reprimanded them ahead of time, saying, don't you question Jesus. So they fill up these six huge water-washing vats of water. We can readily assume families involved in the weddings were people that Jesus probably knew. And uh, this probably hit Jesus at a very critical time in his life. It was early into his ministry. This probably was, as far as we know, his coming out miracle. As far as we know, there were no miracles prior to this that Jesus had performed. This was his coming out miracle. And I don't know if you turning water into wine wants to be my coming out miracle. Right? Uh, it just So this is an intriguing area that John is spending time talking about here. He's very intentional about talking about this. I think Jesus demonstration of this is a picture of a couple of things. I'm going to talk about the wine here in a second, but a couple of things. First of all was the party experience. Jesus enjoyed the celebrations. And many times when we read through the Gospels and we read through Scriptures and sometimes being in church and we church literature, we lose sight that God wants us to celebrate. He wants us to celebrate. You can't actually miss that. If you go to Leviticus chapter 23, it's an entire chapter about celebrations, about having feasts, having parties. They would actually be told to have parties that would be day upon day upon day upon day. Seven days they were to celebrate. Over and over we have instances where when they wanted to weep because they were overcome with grief, Jesus or, or prophets would say, stop that. There's a point to grieve. A point to be remorseful, but there's a point to begin to lift up your praise to God and begin to declare His goodness and His greatness and His wonder and His awesomeness and His abundance again. Because as you do that, it, the abundance flows onto you. If all you ever do is look at Him as lack, look at Him as a sense of there's nothing left, we are just grinding it by, then that's all you're going to get. But when you see Him as a God whose fullness 
and you begin to praise him and embrace him, then he flows into you and you are built up. That's why enter into his courts with praise. Enter into his courts with thanksgiving. And then the rest begins to work itself out as you begin to admonish and honor and love on him and lift him high and glorify his name and exalt him for who he is, magnifying our God. Jesus was no exception to this. He commands that we celebrate his goodness and his greatness. There's times, and that's why we want to, when we start our day, we want to worship him. You know, the first song we had this morning, highest praise. We give God our highest praise. We lift up our praise to him. I don't feel like it, you know, just got out of bed, just did this, just did that. But I give him my highest praise because there's fullness in him. Jesus would perform his first miracle. A couple things I need to mention here. Number one, God ordained that Christ's first earthbound miracle would be filling empty jars. And this is a picture of Jesus. He chooses to fill what's empty. Just a couple chapters later, he's at a well. A woman comes. She had tried to fill the emptiness in her life by multiple marriages. Jesus talked to her and he says, no, you can worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a spirit, there's a fullness that you know nothing of. You've tried to find it through water, literal water. This world can't satisfy. You will run dry. You've tried to find it. You've had multiple husbands. You've looked for relationships to fill it. But relationships will leave you wanting. No, you must find you must find the living water. Jesus talks about this place that that brings us that he wants to fill the emptiness. And when he when she received fullness that day, she ran back to town and she says, Yeah, I've been married these many times and I've got water at the well. But this man filled me with something I've never had before. Come. And the whole town came out because they felt empty and they needed fullness. Jesus delights to fill what's empty. And the picture here at the first miracle is not just about the wine. It's about there, were, there was emptiness. And Jesus has come to give life and life more abundantly. So from Jesus, therefore Mary says, follow Jesus. Why? Because he fills emptiness. So if he gives an empty jar, he'll fill an empty jar. If you give him your life. He'll fill an empty life. If your job is empty, then give him your job. He'll fill an empty job. If your relationships are empty, go to him. He'll fill you in a relationship. He fills what's empty. He fills what's empty. An unsatisfied soul is an accident waiting to happen. And John's gospel points us to the fact that we were never, to, never meant to live with emptiness. We were meant to live in fullness as children of God. But let me get to the part of the new wine. I do not believe the wine that Jesus turned that day was intoxicated wine. Because if it did, it went against every character and nature of God to make an intoxicated fermented wine. Now, there are those who will debate it. But did you notice the part where it says when they partook of this wine, it was the sweetest of wine? Well, fermented wine is not the sweetest of wine. It's before it's fermented. It turns sour. The type of sourness that comes out of the fermentation. It was not intoxicated wine. As a matter of fact, so sweet was the wine, they would often add water to it because it was so sweet. It was in the early stages. It was, it was the grape, and it was so sweet. It was delicious. It exploded. And typically, it was uncommon for the marriages, particularly in the church marriages, that there was not a drunken brawl because that would go against everything of the faith. When you lose control of yourself, 
When you let this world fill you with what this world gets, because you have a hangover afterward, and you do stupid things, and all the stuff that has the negative effects, and he says, no, do not be filled with that. You be filled with new wine. What's new wine? The Spirit. And so the wine that Jesus turned that day was not, I believe, every indication. It was sweet wine. It says it was sweetest of wine. It was sweet. It was sweet from the grape. And when they partook of it, they said, this is new wine. And that picture of new wine, it's the living wine. It's that which is brand new. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to all kinds of things that are harmful. Instead, be filled with spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit accomplishes what we are looking for when we seek the wine from this world, when we seek the things from this world. We seek, we long for it. One reason people drink too much is because it changes the way they feel. It changes the way you behave. You can't enjoy life unless you think you can do that. So does the new wine in Christ, what happens there? He says what happens there is it will never run dry. The things your body longs for, I will give you. The world has given a cheap substitute to this. So don't embrace it. Go after the new wine. And John was grabbing a hold of this in the early part of the gospel. The new wine. The wine that is a filling of the Holy Spirit. The new wine of Christ. Its effects are always good. We can drink our fill of Him without any negative side effects. And there's no empty. When we're filled with Him... There's no temporary fix to it. It has eternal reward. He wants to give more life. He wants to fill us to overflowing. And lastly, John goes to John chapter 3, verse 16, one of our favorite verses. Let me close with this one. More about the world. John 3, 16. Would everybody read this together? I think it's up here. Everybody together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One of the most astounding statistical comparisons between the Gospel of John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke is John was inspired to talk about the world more than them. Based on word count, Matthew mentions the word, the world, ten times. Luke mentions world five times. Uh, or sorry, Mark mentions the world five times, and Luke mentions the world seven times. So what's that? 10, 5, 15, 7, 22. 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they mention the world total 22 times. How many times did John in 21, 21 chapters mention the world? 73 times. The other three combined, 22. 73. John is tapping into something here. And so I'm sitting up going, John, if I'm going to fall to the heart of Jesus, what was it about the world that you were seeing? In fact, the totality of John's New Testament contributions informing us about the world constitutes more than half of the entire New Testament. So if we miss the concept of what John was saying about the world, we will miss a lot of what he's trying to tell us. So we have to look at it. Every time the world, when John mentioned it, it comes down from the Greek word cosmos. We go cosmo, cosmos. With the K though, K-O-S-M-O-S. The word means world, cosmos. The primary meaning, and here's the meaning when John wrote the world. He said, order, regular, disposition, arrangement. The earth, this lower world, as the abode of man. That's his reference to the world. 
Now we grasp what John is trying to say. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit desired the existence of humanity in this world for the purpose of fellowship. God wanted humans to have fellowship with him. He wanted us to have fellowship and so he gave us a free will. We call it our soul. And in that free will, he didn't command us, he didn't order us, he didn't make us to love him. He didn't make us to have fellowship with him. We could choose not to. At that very moment, God also understood that equipping humanity with the will necessitated a plan of redemption because we would ultimately make bad choices. As soon as he gave us the will, he knew we'd make bad choices. Before the fall, God had already set in place redemption plan, even before the fall. God, his participation in the work of creation, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now just track with me here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word of God delineates between this little planet called earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and then earth. So, the heavens is everything outside the earth. We understand that we have a solar system. We've come to understand that. Earth is a part of a solar system. Our solar system is part of a galaxy called, somebody help me, the Milky Way. And we are told, perhaps, that there are a hundred billion galaxies, galaxies, in the visible universe. Mind-boggling. Psalms 147 verse 4 tells us God determines the number of stars and God calls them each by name. Okay, now I can't get my head around that. I don't even try. Hundreds of billions of galaxies within each galaxies of all the stars. And God calls them by name. It's pretty impressive. But it gets even more impressive where it says, In the beginning God created... All of that, the sun, the moon, every star, planets around earth. I don't think we have any idea of the activities that take place in the universe. I mean, we know so very little. But according to the Bible, and as far as what he wants us to know, he wants us to know this, that he has poured his affections on one tiny planet. It's called earth. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth. Speaks specifically the earth. He picks us out so that when the time would fully come, Galatians 4.4, he would send his son to the earth. His son to the earth. So we come back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Remember John spoke about the world 73 times. God loves this world. He loves this world. Over and over, he loves this world. He loves this world. In a universe so vast, in a universe so incomprehensible, why, God, why do you love this little planet called Earth? God so loved the world, John says. And you want to know why he loves this world so much? Because you're on it. We need to know that. You're on this world. The other planets, we don't know what's going on out there. But you're here. 
And God so loved this world. He loves the speck of dust. Not just for the oceans and the earth and, the, and all the beautiful creation. And there's a lot of beauty here. But he loves it because he put you here. He loves you. It's because he loves you. He loves this world. That's what John is saying. God loves this world because he loves you. You're on it. And it's despicable as humanity can be, God loves us. Inconceivably, we are his treasures. We are his prized creation. God can't help himself. He just loves you. He can't hold that back. He just loves you. And John is trying to say that 73 times. God loves you. Over and over, John is saying, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Do you get it? Sometimes we have to hear it a hundred times to really believe, God, do you love me? I can understand you loving them and them and that and that, but not me. And that's where Peter's problem was. God, you don't love me. And Jesus over and over said, Peter, do you love me? It came down to Peter. John doesn't have anything more special than you have access to. Because God loves you, Peter. I love you, Peter. In fact, God loves us so much, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that John says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting, ever and ever and ever and ever and ever life. Whoever believes in him. Wow, I need to grab a hold of that in my spirit. King David had a hard time understanding this. In Psalms 8, verse 3, David said, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And here was the point David's making, verse 4. What is mankind, God, that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? Why did everything revolve around us? So we want to conclude with what, where we started. Let's go back to John chapter 1, verse 10. We're going to read it again. Trying to get through the lens of John. Jesus, verse 10, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Verse 11, John 1, 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We close our time, know that we need to have passion for the fullness of what God has. And his love for you has not diminished today. It has not worn out over time. He's not given up in the human race. As John says, he so loves this world. He loves it because you're here. He created you. He chose you to live. And the embracement right here. Can we read verse 10, 11, and 12? I think we have it up here. Can we do that again? Can we just read it all together? Everybody one voice. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God.
Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.